Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Hebrews, and let's go to chapter 4. And listen to the title of our teaching this morning, My Rest in Jesus Christ. Now, we've been looking at, in the first several chapters, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Remember that this letter is being written to Hebrew Christians that have basically come out of Judaism and now have come in uh, to that place of salvation. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews, we know, is the Holy Spirit, and he's pinning uh, this letter of encouragement, the supremacy of Christ, that he is God. And then we began to see the superiority of Jesus Christ, that he's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And we're going to continue that Jesus is our final high priest. He is our complete sacrifice. But now we come to chapter 4. This encouragement this morning, my rest in Jesus Christ. Now, there are variations of describing the word rest. When you open up your Webster's Dictionary, the word rest comes up, and it speaks of the time period of taking one's ease after a work day. And so some might work the, you know, eight hours a day or the 10 hours or the 12 hours, and then come to that place of rest. Rest also, Webster says, to sleep is to rest. He goes on to keep still and to know rest. When we speak of rest... We have this rest that's from uh, freedom from worry, from trouble, from pain, from anguish, from stress. How many times people need that rest? But the resting place also, or the shelter for a worried traveler. I know that in, in our travels and some of you, in your travels, how you like desperately to get to the end, and it's done. The word rest, Webster's goes on, to be at ease, to have peace of mind. Here is the last translation that Webster's gave. And I thought it was interesting. Rest. When you finally come to that place of your resting place in the grave, you're dead now. That rest. And then I was thinking about it. So my question is, that last statement, the body is in the grave or there's been cremation, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But what about the soul and the spirit? And so... Where's that eternal rest? Is that eternal rest uh, in heaven or is that eternal rest uh, in hell? And that's a choice that we have. But here in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, the writer brings us to that place of my personal rest in Christ. And so this morning we're going to draw from this. And let's begin here in Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, that you would come short of God's rest. So notice the writer here in verse 1, that he says there is a promise. In other words, yet to come. We will one day enter his final rest. We know that. But right now, in Jesus Christ, we have this assurance of his rest. Not my rest, but his rest. This word rest is interesting. It's katapasua uh, in, in the Greek, but we find it five times just in this chapter alone. And so if you're taking notes, we find it in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 10, and verse 11. Now this word katapazo means the final causing 
to rest. The putting to rest. In these verses, it gives the promise of coming to God's rest. This is God's rest to man. What a gift of God. This can only be done through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, as we come to saving grace. Now, when we speak of rest, I thought about this passage of Scripture. So I want you to leave a, a marker there and turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 11. And so we come to that word rest again. My rest is in Jesus Christ. But here, uh, as we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, notice that the rest that God places within our very souls, we need that rest. And so in Matthew 20, uh, 11, verse 28, Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. And I like the way he describes it here. You're going to find rest in your souls. This rest Jesus speaks of is the rest now. I've come to saving grace. You know, I was part of that world system. I was out there doing the sins of the world. But now I've come to Christ or I've come back to Christ. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, there were those that were drifting away. And so that encouragement, that warning, get back to God. Taste of the Lord, for he is good. How can we leave that first love? That's what happened uh, to the church at Ephesus. But notice, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your very souls. Now, he uses farming terms, the word yoke. He brings it back in verse 30. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see, if we've come to saving grace, if I've made Jesus Lord of my life, Jesus is my yoke. A yoke joins you together. In the farming terms, they would take two oxen and they would become one as they were yoked together. Now us, this morning, as the Hebrew Christian, if we're Christian, we become one in Jesus Christ because I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. And I can come into that rest. But we're going to study how the children of Israel frustrated themselves. They didn't come into that uh, promised land rest. And sometimes Christians come to that place and they don't enter that promised rest. And we struggle. And, and we're, you know, wandering just like the children of Israel. And so let's go back to our text now. Well, if you leave a marker there again, go to Revelation chapter 3. I had another verse and I didn't look at my notes. Revelation chapter 3. And I just want to uh, touch a little bit here on the church at Philadelphia. They had come in to God's rest. Now, if you go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there's the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. There were actual churches. You go back in your maps in the back of your Bible, you can see the layout. Kind of looks like a horseshoe effect. And those were actual churches, but these churches are a type of throughout history. Even today, we have the Philadelphia church. And so listen to the exhortation. Because the church at Philadelphia, doing what God had called them to do, they'd come into that rest. And so he says here, this is eternal rest now. In Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. 
this is in the heavenly place. Only to the church that has come into his complete rest. Now, the final rest. And this was the church at Philadelphia. In verse 13, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. In other words, if we're obedient, God's going to bring us to that place of rest. Now, again, Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 1. We want to finish it off now. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, and we come to the conclusion of the verse, let us fear, lest any one of you seem to have come short of that promise, short of that rest. The word fear, reverence with trembling, lest any one of us, and he's speaking to the Hebrew Christians, come short of his rest. Come short of his rest now. But what about the rest of eternal life? As we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. His rest today, right now, that's what he's speaking about. Later, his complete rest in the heavenly place with Jesus Christ. Imagine neglecting that rest. He's given us the rest. It's a free gift. And sometimes we frustrate ourselves within ourselves. Man, we need to learn, listen, to rest in Christ. And it's on a daily basis, not just Sunday morning. And then especially tomorrow, we go back to school, we go back to work. And then all of a sudden, we're, you know, amongst the secular world again. I need that rest in Christ. Now, notice Hebrews 4 again, and we go to verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the words which they have heard did not profit them. Imagine hearing the gospel. Hearing the gospel all your life, and it has not profit you. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And we come to hear God's word, but we have to come to him, listen, with faith. The gospel message is a free gift of God. We call it the good news. It has been preached. In, in fact, for the last 2,000 years. Now, the Greek word here is the same word that we draw our English to evangelize. So when the gospel is preached, it's evangelized. In other words, it's been made heard. It's been made declared. It's been announced. It's been shown for the last 2,000 years. It's been preached to us, now to the Hebrew Christians here, as the letter is addressed, but as well as the church, the body of Christ, for the last 2,000 years. And the scripture says we are without excuse. If you're taking notes, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes and he says we're all without excuse. And I think about the United States of America. Think about your own homes. I mean, who doesn't have a Bible at their house? Who doesn't have sometimes more than one Bible? And as Pastor Jeff made the offer, you know, we're going to get this, uh, this CD and it's going to have the whole New Testament. Again, we're out without excuse. The word of God has been preached to us. I would have to venture to say throughout the United States of America, for sure, and pretty much all of the world. Now, there's always those, by chance, they have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet the heavens declare the glory of God. So even then, we're without excuse. For so many that have heard the gospel, the good news, the evangelism has not been profitable, he says here, uh, to all mankind. Many have heard, but to no profit. Imagine hearing the word of God, but to no profit. It says, to no advantage. 
Why? Because they did not come to saving grace. They never came to saving grace because it was not mixed with faith. It was not tempered in faith, made solid. When we used to temper steel back uh, in the machine shop years ago, it was purposely, you had to make it tempered in order to make it solid. And then it would hold up. So many times we hear the gospel, but we don't hear it by faith. So many times we hear the gospel and we don't come to it by grace and faith. It's not profitable. In other words, imagine just going to church, just being part of the, the woodwork, if you say. The gospel has been preached. The gospel has been heard. We can never come to God's rest without faith in Jesus Christ. We can never come to that rest unless we're born again of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I have to have that mixture again of faith. In Hebrews eleven five, it tells us that Enoch pleased God and God took him. Enoch is a type of the rapture of the church. He had such faith. Imagine that God took him. We're without excuse, church. The gospel has been preached. Now, let's continue. Look at verse 3. For we, not, not just the Hebrew Christians, but the church, the body of Christ, we who have believed do not enter the, that rest as he has said. Now, he goes back, as we did last week, to Psalm 95, verse 11. He's quoting, so I swore in my wrath. To that first generation that was in the wilderness, they did not enter God's wrath. Rest, that is. But they, God now swears on his wrath that it's going to come. They shall not enter my rest. Although, listen, the works were finished from the foundations of the world. Now, in verse 3, he's speaking about the true Christian. The true believer in Jesus Christ has already entered that rest because we are saved. We're Christian. We're born again. Then the writer goes back to Psalm 95, verse 11 that we studied last week. God took an oath that that generation in the wilderness, that first generation, would not enter the promised land, that Canaan land rest, even though God had brought them forth all the good works. That's what he's speaking about in verse 3. For the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, we know the story. We shared it last week. For 400 years, they're in bondage in Egypt, and they begin to cry out because the taskmasters were so hard, so harsh. And they heard the cries of the nation of Israel. God sends a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And he said, no, and he hardened his heart. And God hardened his heart even further. But then God brought forth, listen, Ten plagues. They saw the works of God. And then not only that, then the Red Sea split. Two million plus crossed that Red Sea. And then the Egyptian army followed in and they drowned as the Red Sea closed back up. God gave them a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. God provided manna in the desert. He provided water from the rock. Remember, they wanted meat. And he, re, he, he gave them quail meat. To go with the manna, so much quail meat, it came out of their nostrils, the scripture says. Now, ladies, remember this? In the 40 years of the wilderness, their shoes and their clothing never wore out. Imagine that. 
Now for us this morning, the work from the foundations of the world, his creation and his salvation for all mankind uh, through the cross at Calvary Chapel and through the cross at Calvary, let's put it that way, has found salvation. We have salvation through Christ. But now listen, not everyone enters that rest. I have three scriptures here I want to share with you. It is so important. Imagine going to church all of your life, and sometimes that happens in denominational circles, but not coming to salvation. And because you've not come to salvation, you've not come to that rest, that rest in Christ. No matter what, we have the trials and the tribulations, the hardships and the pain, but I've come to God's rest. Now, listen to these verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, Paul writes and he says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. How many times we've witnessed to somebody, and it's just like it falls on deaf ears. We share with somebody, and it just seems like it bounces right off the heart. Remember the time somebody shared with us and we didn't immediately receive the word. And so the natural man, he does not understand the things of the spirit. Now, why? Listen to the next verse. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, whose minds, Paul says, the God of this age has blinded. And he uses a small g. He's speaking of Satan. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. The enemy gets in there, and the enemy, we shared last week, deludes the gospel message, and we don't come to that place of rest. Now, how do we come against this? It's a spiritual warfare that we're in, according to Ephesians chapter 6. But let me read this last verse in 2 Corinthians 10, 4. Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Church, there are going to be those that we minister to. There are going to be those that hear the gospel. There are going to be those that receive the gospel, but it doesn't penetrate the heart. There's no salvation. And so it's a spiritual warfare. I know for some of us, we're praying for loved ones. It might be a spouse, it might be a mom or a dad, it might be a brother and sister. And we still haven't seen them come to saving grace. So Paul encourages here, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You see, we're not fighting a physical battle, we're fighting a spiritual battle. And so we have this tendency in a physical battle, well, I'll get some type of weapon. But the spiritual battle. What is our weapon? We have the weapon of prayer. We have the weapon of fasting. We have the weapon of standing firm upon God's word, God's promises. And so bringing down the strongholds, these fortified places, these fortresses, it's telling us uh, in the Greek. And sometimes the enemy has such a hold of that loved one. And this is where intercession of prayer. Some of those that did not come into God's rest, the enemy had blinded them, had clouded them. 
And church, we need to come to this place to understand the power of God through prayer. Now let's continue. Look at verse 4 now. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's quoting here back in Genesis chapter 2 verse 2. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. This is God's creation rest. His Sabbath rest. On the sixth day, he finished his creation. The number six is the number of man. On the seventh day, God rested. He sets up the rest for us. Now, I've often asked this question to myself. Did God have to rest on the seventh day? No. But he rested for us. Now, his work was done, and he rested. He said, this is the day of rest. Now, come into that place of rest God has given us that beautiful place of rest now he continues look at verse 5 and again in this place they shall not enter my rest now what is he saying here in this Canaan rest they had come to the promised land that first generation they did not come into that Canaan rest now they were part of that creation rest but they had not come in to that rest. And basically, he's quoting Psalm 95 again. That first generation did not enter God's rest because of their rebellion. Remember, we spoke last week. They had a rebellious heart, a heart of unbelief, a, a heart of disobedience. Their hearts were callous. Their hearts were cold. Their hearts were hard. Their hearts were a stony heart. And God wanted to give them a heart after his heart. He wanted to give them a heart of flesh. And sometimes we still fit that category. Maybe uh, we are not part of those children of Israel that were in the wilderness, but we find ourselves in that area of the wilderness because we've not come in uh, to his rest. Now, he gives us a warning here in verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached to did not enter. And here's the key. Here's the warning. Because of disobedience. Now, back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, was the first warning. Be careful that you don't drift away. Be careful that you don't slip back into Judaism for the Hebrew Christians. Be careful that you don't go back to Babylon or go back to Egypt for the Gentiles. Be careful that we don't begin to backslide. And so now he brings in this second warning. Here in verse 6, the warning of disobedience. And then we're going to read in verse 7 again, the warning of disobedience. But notice that he says it remains. That is, still has not happened. There are those, the Hebrew believers, that had not uh, entered God's rest. The Israelites who were first preached to. The evangelism that was given to the Jew first. These have not entered because of unbelief. You see, disobedience is unbelief. They have not, listen to the translation, they have not submitted to God because of unbelief. In other words, there's no faith in God. Oh, they say God is their God, but there's no real faith. God cannot and he will not bless disobedience or unbelief. How can he do that? We must come by free will choice. 
that first generation did not enter his promised rest because of unbelief. Remember we shared last week? Their bodies were strewn out through the desert. They died. They did not enter God's rest. And what a sad commentary. I was thinking of the concept. God forbid that it would happen. But imagine going to church all your adult life. Let's give it a, a number of 25, 35 years. You go to church. You hear the gospel. It's been preached to you. You read the word of God. But you've never come to that place of rest. You never come to that place acknowledging Christ as your Savior. If we don't have Christ as our Savior, how can we come into his rest? The problem is unbelief. The problem is disobedience. And here's the hardship because we struggle with this. The problem is submission. Submission to God, submission to his word. That first generation in the wilderness did not enter the promised rest. What about us this morning? What about the Hebrew Christians that the letter is being written to? Now, we continue. Look at verse 7. Again, he designates a certain day saying, in David, he goes back to the Old Testament again. Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. What a key. Now, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95 again, verses 7 and 8. Now, listen to one of my commentaries, Barnes Notes. They had been over 500 years in possession of the promised land in Cana, yet many of the hearts were still hard, still callous, still uh, stony hearts. Why? Pride had set in. You see, when we come to saving grace, God wants to change us. God wants to transform us. God wants to take us from the old man, the old woman, and bring us into a relationship. Bring us into that rest. He begins to transform us, listen, from the inside out. We're so quick to try to change the outside. But it's the inside. Pride is the downfall of man. If you go back uh, to Isaiah chapter 14, it was Lucifer's downfall. Five I wills of Lucifer. He wanted to take over God's domain. And God kicked him out of heaven. Now in Ezekiel chapter 28, I believe that he was the third archangel and that he was in charge of the music in heaven. But he desired, pride sets in, I can do what God's doing. He wanted to be God. Now the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's love was always there. The greatest treasure of God's word, the law in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, he gives us the gospel, the good news. God desires to place his treasure, which is his word, into our hearts. Now I'm going to challenge you. We've been challenging for the last two weeks. You know, we're going to do this project from Hosanna Ministries. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And, you know, we're supposed to cover uh, the New Testament in 40 days. What a blessing. And God's going to bless you if you truly take that initiative. But I'm going to give you another challenge concerning, you know, God's word. How many times we, you know, we read the Psalms? And I'm going to be, be honest with you. When I come to Psalm 119, I kind of pass it by because it's 176 verses. But you have to take the time and just sit down and study Read Psalm 119, 176 verses. The entire psalm 
teaches on the importance of God's word. I, I think there's three verses out of the whole 176 that don't pertain to God's word. But basically, it's talking about that great treasure. I've hidden God's word in my heart. God's word is a lamp unto my feet. And those are just a few quotes that I've remembered from the text now. But God wants to place his word, listen, in our hearts. God forbid that, you know, we all have Bibles, hopefully. And then we read them. We have them at home. We might have several. But do we actually read the Word of God? Do we come on Sunday mornings? Do we listen to the Word of God? And is there, and here's the third one, is there application? You see, there's three aspects of studying God's Word. Observation, interpretation, but there has to be the third one, application. James says, don't just be hearers of the Word, but be doers also. Make application to God's Word. Now, I want you to turn to this passage. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul speaks about this word, how it needs to be placed in our hearts. Not in the tablets of stone, which would have been in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, or, you know, in black and white, which is our scripture reading. And we read the Bible, and we have all kinds of beautiful Bibles, leather and, and you know, paperbacks. We have hardcover. Now we have it on CD. But have we placed it in our hearts? Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 1 now. He says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And so oftentimes when a letter was sent, and let's say it was sent to, you know, the church in Galatia or the churches in Galatia, and then Paul, you know, he would say from the apostle Paul. And so we had introduction. But listen to what he's saying here. You, he goes into verse 2, you are our epistles written in our hearts. Underline that. Then he goes, known and read by all men. In other words, if we're Christian, we're born again to the Holy Spirit. We've made application in our lives. God's transforming us. God's changing us. We become a walking testimony. I know not everybody wants to hear the gospel. I know sometimes we go to work and, you know, the possibilities there, they're going to listen to a certain extent. I've had those opportunities years back in the workplace. But not everybody wants to listen. But they need to see your witness. They need to see your testimony. Now, do we say one thing to them out of the scriptures, and yet we do something else in their presence? You see, you can do a hundred good things, and they'll never notice but you do one bad thing, I'll tell you, they know right away. Oh, Christian, huh? I just saw her get mad. I just saw him get mad. Oh, I've been there. I know. So our testimony, you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Then he comes to verse 3. Listen to this. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered, I like this, by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is, on your heart. Psalm 119, put it in your heart. As we're going through the book of Hebrews, let it be placed in your heart. Let them see your testimony. Let them hear your testimony of who you are, how God has transformed you. Take off that old man, that old woman, and put on Christ. 
And then watch what he's going to do. Now let's go to verse 8. Let's continue. For if Joshua, now if you have a King James, it's the word Jesus. For if Joshua had given them rest, remember Joshua brings them into the promised land, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. I like this. Now the Hebrew that is being used here is the word Joshua, and it's translated Yehoshua. But in the New Testament is Jesus, the word for Joshua. Through Joshua, Israel did not come into their Canaan rest, not all of them. They never took all the land that God had for them, and, and still today. Israel still does not have all the land that God had promised them. But the future day, listen. Now, here's where the interpretation of Jesus comes in. Now, the future day, Joshua or Jesus, another day, was the rest that would come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which is our Lord and Savior. Again, how many times we've mentioned this? The Old Testament completes the New Testament, brings it to that place. Jesus, the complete sacrifice. Jesus, our final high priest. Jesus, the complete Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the world is constantly pressing. The news is constantly pressing. You know, Israel is to give back some of the land. And she has throughout the years. But has it brought peace in her heart? No. Have the others around them settled down? No. They take and then they want more. It's amazing to me that the Palestinians, you know, want not just parts of Israel. They want it all. They want Jerusalem. And when you look in your maps, unless you know what you're looking for, it's very hard and difficult to single out Israel. But it's there. It's very an insignificant piece of land. But it's God's land. And it's God's city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And everybody wants a piece of it. And so we want to, you know, give some to the Palestinians to have peace. But the more we give, the more they want. And so Israel has not come in to that rest. That Joshua took them in to the promised land. They didn't take all the land that still is coming to them. Now, look. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 9. And still to come, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now, we know that after he created the world, he rested. That's called his creation rest. We establish it as his Sabbath rest. There still remains a rest for God's people. Now, the Jews have not come yet into their rest with God. We, the church, wait for our heavenly rest. But many of the Jews have not come to saving grace. Now, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. We know that the seven years of tribulation are to woo back the nation of Israel unto himself. There are those that say, God is finished with Israel. He's not, church. God is not finished. Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, it speaks of Israel's trouble. That's what the seven years of tribulation. Now, that doesn't mean the Gentiles are not part of it. But God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Now, we could be just like the nation of Israel, even though God has poured out his grace and his love and his mercy to the Gentiles. But we could easily harden our hearts 
Look how many of our family, friends and loved ones have not come to that place of saving grace. Now look at verse 10. We continue. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Now watch this. Those who enter God's rest. Now those that have come now to salvation through Jesus Christ. Rest from his or her own work. Now, it doesn't mean that we worked our way to heaven. But it's speaking about our physical work. God has given us such rest now. In your labor, the word uh, work. In your toil, in your strife. Just as God did from his work. And God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath rest, he rested. Because it was good. His creation was good. But God has given us rest from our work. And one day we'll get his final rest in the heavenly places. Now, I don't want to leave this just sit there. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Because be careful when there are those that say, well, I need to work my way into the kingdom of God. So, you know, I'm saved now, so I have to stop my works. That's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. I believe that works come automatically after salvation. Now, I've quoted this scripture many times, and you should know it by now. In Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 8 through 10. Paul begins here, and he says it so beautifully. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice the mixture of grace and faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Oh, salvation is a free gift of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, the problem with a gift, it's just a gift, and it's not yours until you take it and until you make application. I don't know if some of you are notorious for this, but it just seems like in my older age, you know, my family gives me gifts for Christmas, and I just have a hard time opening them up. I get more excitement watching everybody else open them up. And so, Dad, aren't you going to open them? Yeah, I'll open them later. And if I don't open them, I won't open them later. Then the kids will call their email, Dad, how'd you like my gift? And I go, oh, that was pretty good. I haven't even opened it yet. The gift is there, but unless you take it, unless you make application, unless you get that soap on a rope and actually use it, it's not your gift. It has to be taken. It's a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. Look at this again. In verse 9, not of works, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, if we could work our way into the kingdom of God, we would use that. If, if the Lord had, you know, a scriptural base and said, listen, if you paint the church 10 times in 10 years, you're saved. You know how many people would come to paint the church? It would be incredible. But it's a work. You see, we need to come to God freely by his grace, his love and mercy. And then he concludes it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The word is poema. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, James tells us 
that our works come automatically after we come to saving grace. We're working for the Lord. We're serving the Lord. Like yesterday, there were so many servants here at the chapel for the woman's brunch. It was beautiful to watch. But each one of them knows that we're serving, that we're, you know, setting the tables or taking down the tables, whatever it might be. Not for salvation, but because salvation is already there. And we want to do for God. And so beautiful concept here. For we are his workmanship. The word poema, we are his handiwork. We are his creation. We are his peace of heart. Think about that. Now let's continue with our text. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent. I like that. Underline that word. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In other words, what we've been speaking of, that first generation in the Old Testament. But the King James uses the word labor instead of diligent. But the actual translation is the word diligent. It's a better translation. And it means to be, let us be diligent to enter. Let us be prompt. Uh, let us use speed. Let us move on this rest. I mean, we need to come into his rest. Be diligent to enter that rest, the rest that Jesus Christ has for each one of us, lest we might fall like the example of the children of Israel in the 40 days of wilderness. Why? Because of disobedience. So here, that second warning here is in verse 11, as we read in verse 6, because of disobedience, because of unbelief. In other words, no faith in, in, in God in the Old Testament his law, no faith in Jesus Christ and his word in the New Testament. The Hebrews, many of them, remember, that first generation did not enter his promised rest. Rebellion has a, a strange way to work in our hearts. The hardness of our hearts, the, the rebellion, the unbelief, the unfaithfulness. Now, we've studied this many times. After 400 years of bondage, God finally sends him a deliverer. Moses comes, let my people go. Now, if you study the geographics of the land of Goshen, which was basically about 20 miles outside of Egypt, all scholars will tell you to take 2 million people from the land of Goshen to the promised land, which would have been to cross that Jordan, it was easily done. Listen, an 11-day journey and they give you the plus or minus benefit of the doubt 11 days you know when i first heard that it floored me and the first question you asked well then why did it take them 40 years because of the hardness of their hearts because of unbelief because of rebellion and remember the greatest way to describe the children of israel during the time of the rebellion they murmured and complained god gave them a cloud by day in the desert. God gave them a pillar of fire by night. God gave them manna in the desert. He gave them water from a rock. He gave them the quail. I mean, he supplied everything. And they still, listen, murmured and complained. You say, that's not right. Well, that's us. Look what God does for us and how God supplies for us. And yet, we murmur and complain. Some of us, including myself, we can neglect not coming into God's rest. And yet it's been made available to us, church. 
It's just like the children of Israel. Hey, maybe we need to go back to Egypt. It's like the Hebrew Christians that the letter's being written to. Well, maybe we need to go back to Judaism. It's like the Gentiles. Well, you know, Christianity has become such a, a task for me. Maybe I need to go back to my religion. Oh, be careful, church. God's called us into a relationship, and man, he wants to bless all we have to do. Listen, the key word, come into his obedience. Come into his obedience, you're going to come into his rest. Let's continue now in verse 12 for the word of God. And here's for those ones that say, that's a dead word. It's an Old Testament. It was in the time of Moses and Elijah and all those guys. And then it was in the time of Peter, Paul, James, and John. You know, the Old New Testament now. But we're in the 21st century. We have arrived. And, and, you know, people say, it's a dead word. Listen to this. For the word of God, if you have a King James, is quick. But the translation, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and of the marrow, and, listen to this, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word. That's the effect of God's word. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's alive. It's not a dead word. It's not, you know, it's an old book, Pastor Bob. God's word is alive. Those of you that are coming on Wednesday nights, how we've been going through the Old Testament, how we've been gleaning from it. The Word of God is alive, church. Now notice that the Word of God is alive. God's Word cuts. How many times we've listened to the Word of God. Maybe I'm dabbling in some type of air, some type of sin, and then all of a sudden God's Word cuts. That's the power of God's Word. And so the Word of God cuts deep. It's like a surgeon's scalpel, and it says it cuts deep. It removes sin, sin that kills. And we need to discern the word of God as it judges. The word of God discerns us. It judges. It discerns how, but by the Holy Spirit. It judges the thoughts and the intents of the mind and of the heart. How many times I think I'm getting away with it? How many times you think you're getting away with it? How many times the children of Israel thought they were getting away with it? And yet God's word is powerful, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We've used this analogy. You're going through the word, even on your own, and then all of a sudden it seems like, you know, that page leaped out at you or that verse leaped out at you, and you go, wow. Well, that's the power of God's word. And we're not to neglect it, but let's listen, let's hear, and then let's what? Make application. Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers also. The Word of God judges, it discerns by the power of the Holy Spirit, the thoughts, the intents of the heart and of the mind. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature, uh, we think we're going to get away with it, right? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him uh, to whom we must give an account. No one, no man, no woman, no young person is hidden from God's eyes. All things are naked or unclothed. In other words, God sees all things, church. He sees, 
if God sees all things, and he does, we will all one day give an account for what we've done. Imagine not coming to saving grace, and we've heard the gospel. We'll have to give an account. What did we do with Jesus? Did we accept him, or did we reject him? You see, again, God's word is powerful. Now, he sees all things. We, we hide things from our spouse. We hide things from, you know, our coworkers. We can hide things from, you know, our kids. But how can we hide things from God? In Psalm 139, it's the all-seeing eye of God. He sees everything. And I tell you, as you study God's word, as you get closer to God's word, and you get closer to God, obviously, the Holy Spirit's there to convict. And praise God, don't get angry when the Holy Spirit convicts you. It's good. It's good. And don't you feel complete when you finally realize, okay, Lord, forgive me. And, and you know, he cleanses the slate. And in a sense, we start over again. Now, I want you to turn to this passage. I love it. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 14, and look at verse 11. You see, there is nothing hidden. Man is without excuse, the book of Romans, chapter 1. And especially, listen, our United States of America, who has not heard the gospel message? We're inundated with it. Ah, oh, there's those you know, Christians again. There's that, you know, Christian program again. There's that radio program again. Not everybody loves and enjoys the Word of God. Hey, I remember before I came to Christ, and, you know, I'm flipping through the radio station, and especially late at night, I've been having a couple of, of drinks and such already, you know, just kind of relaxed, and then this guy says, hey, you're a rotten sinner. You're no good. You're coming to, you need to come to Christ. You need to stop drinking. I go, what's this guy doing on the radio? Conviction comes. But what's our first reaction? Change the station. We didn't have push buttons in those days. Change the station. <laughs> but look at Romans chapter 14, verse 11. And he's quoting here, Paul is quoting, if you're taking notes, from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. In verse 11, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then... Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's or sister's way. But every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And what are we going to confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we don't have time this morning. But do a cross-reference in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Basically, Paul brings back the same, you know, scripture base. Again, he's bringing it back from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. But there in, in Philippians, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And what are we going to confess? That Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know there are those that do not believe that Jesus uh, is God, do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, you know, Jesus is a good man, good humanitarian, good prophet. I mean, there's a lot of labels they've given him, but Jesus is God. That's what the book of Hebrews is. The book of Hebrews has been just showing us that. He's greater than the angels. He's greater, you know, than the law. He's greater than Moses. Jesus 
in the incarnate state, he took on a body. He is God. Never left his godhood. Now we come to the conclusion. Beautiful. Speaks about, you know, as we come into this rest in Jesus Christ, we come into his rest. Understand this. Because he took on human flesh, we serve a compassionate God. He cares for us. He loves us. And so in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Listen, speaks of his resurrection. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, our confession of faith, church. We have a great high priest, not just a high priest, but a great high priest. In fact, Jesus is the final high priest. And he says, he has already ascended and passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, our confession of faith in him. And so I want you to think about this now. One commentary, which I love, Barnes notes, he says, we know that the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead on the third day will one day also resurrect us into glory. Because he rose again, we will rise also. This is when we come to the complete promise of his rest, his eternal rest. I, I believe that's a soon time approaching if we're waiting for the rapture of the church. We need to have that hope, that anticipation that it will happen in our time. Now, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. Now, I love when the Trinity comes together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you three verses. Each member of the Godhead had a hand in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 4, it says that the Father raised Jesus, his Son, from the dead. In John, chapter 10, verse 17, the Son himself, Jesus Christ, had his own hand in his resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Holy Spirit, listen, raised Jesus from the dead. What a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Three distinct persons, one God. Now, look, let's continue. Look at verse 15 and 16. We're going to come to the conclusion. For we do not have a high priest, and I'd like to add, for we do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize. I like that. Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, our trials, but was also in all points, he was tempted. He was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin and still is without sin. In verse 15, because Jesus was the incarnate God, the God-man, he took on a body like ours. The word sympathize, listen, Jesus touched or he felt our weaknesses, our infirmities, our pains, our sufferings. In John chapter 11, Jesus was pained in his heart because his friend Lazarus had died. Remember John chapter 11, verse 35, that shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. In his humanity, he wept for his friend, Lazarus. And remember the girls, Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. But Jesus stayed away purposely. He was going to do a miracle sign and a wonder. 
but he wept in his humanity. And so I want you to think of the things we go through, our hurts and our pains, our trials and our tribulation. God knows. Jesus knows because he put on flesh like we have flesh, and he understands our pain. He understands death. Then it says here, he was tempted, but he had no sin. On your own, study Matthew chapter 4. It's the three temptations there of Jesus Christ as he's coming in you know, to his ministry, his public ministry. Satan tempts him. And I love those temptations because every time he was tempted, what did Jesus say? It is written. It is written. It is written. Always make reference to the word of God. Now, we come to the conclusion. Now, in verse 15, real quick, Jesus was all man, all God, but he knew no sin. Yet, he died for our sins. I like that. Verse 16, because we've come to salvation, because we've come into his rest, because we do have the power of God's Holy Spirit, pick up on this. Let us therefore come boldly, underline that, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Or like the psalmist says, in the time of trouble. Now, don't get frustrated, but we're all fall trapped to the same category. It seems like we only call upon the name of the Lord or we mean business with God when I'm at my lowest point in a time of trouble, in a time of need. Oh, Lord, I've really blown it this time. I need you. Now, that's okay. Cry upon, you know, out to the Lord. But, man, imagine that we can have access to the boldness of the throne of grace on a daily basis. Not just when I'm so down on that trial, that tribulation. Now here in verse 16, because Jesus is God, because we have rest now in Jesus Christ through our relationship with him, because I am saved, I can come now, listen, boldly. I come to God's throne of grace with boldness or the boldness of faith. The boldness with assurance of faith. Because I, he says, one of his children, I can come to my heavenly Father with boldness of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Bible says I can ask, I can seek, I can knock at his door. I have that access. So do you, church. Boldness in the Greek here, I can approach Jesus Christ. Listen, the throne room of God with confidence, with freedom of speech, with assurance, I can come freely to him. And church, please don't wait till it's the time of trouble. And, and yes, if you have to, and it's finally come, that's great. But what about the boldness that we have access to every morning? The Jews used to play three, pray three times a day. And remember Daniel, he got in trouble when they passed that edict, you know. And Daniel still went to the window and he opened it up because he prayed to the east. And they set a trap for him. But Daniel would go and pray to the Lord. I want to end with this verse. Uh, just listen to it. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 18 and 19, Paul says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. 
Paul never failed in that area of prayer, boldness of prayer. And for me, listen, verse 19, Paul says, And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly. In other words, with freedom, with confidence, with assurance, to make known the mystery of the gospel. And I tell you what, Paul never held back. This is why he was often uh, left for dead. They would stone him. Sometimes they would lower him in a basket. Paul never held back in the gospel message. Church, through the power of God's spirit, because we've come to saving grace, we have access to that boldness. Oh, Lord, hear my cries. Hear my prayers. And God, I'm convinced, is waiting there. He wants to hear from us. We're his kids. Those of us with children. We love our children. Come to me. Talk to me. Don't ever be afraid. Come to me. You need to open that door to your children. Because if you don't open that door and you don't listen to them, they're going to go somewhere else. You should have that open door. We should have that open door with our Heavenly Father. Lord, it's me. And if you're like me, Lord, it's me and I'm in trouble again. That's okay. I love you. You're one of my kids. I'm going to hear you out. Make supplications. Be specific in your prayers. God is so good, church. But I find all of this because I, I've come to my rest in Jesus Christ. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your precious word, Lord. Thank you for your word that will not come back void, Isaiah said. And Lord, I pray this morning that each one of us have come to that place of rest. Lord, I don't want to be like the children of Israel in that first generation. And they didn't enter. They did not enter that Canaan rest. Lord, we've come to that rest in Christ. And Lord, we're looking forward to that rest in the heavenly places one day. And so, Father, minister to our hearts, Lord. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning as dabbling you know, with their salvation, period. They need to come to the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness. And, Lord, maybe there's some that might be in a backslidden condition. Let us take uh, the horns in the altar and come back and say, Lord, forgive me. I am a prodigal, Lord. I have drifted, Lord. I have fall trapped to verse 6 and verse 11, a trap of disobedience. Lord, I want to serve you. Father, bless your children here this morning and those getting the CD later. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, that you have made it accessible for us to come into your rest. And now, Lord, we ask that you would just uh, bless each and every one of us here this morning. You know, again, Lord, especially for the ladies, uh, today's Mother's Day, a special day for them. Let your anointing to fall upon them. Uh, Father, bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, Lord, this is a time we can uh, give back to you, Lord. Receive our worship through our giving. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And we all agree by saying amen.